David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge, and I will say, um, whether you're visiting or you're regular, I hope you never feel manipulated. That's not my goal at all. I don't want anyone to feel like I'm trying to make you do something or I'm trying to achieve some type of, you know, anything. Jesus says in Luke 19, these moms are bringing their kids, and the disciples say, you know, you can't bring your kids. This is serious business. And Jesus says, let the children come to me, for the kingdom of God belongs to these. And that's our desire when we meet. Um, It's not just that we would talk about God or sing about God or even sing to God, but that we would actually come to Jesus. And you might think that you're not a kid, but somewhere else Jesus says, unless you become like one, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So that's for our children and for us. We feel like it's a good day if we've met Jesus, and we feel like it's not if we haven't. So that was when I was sharing earlier during worship, I just I felt like we weren't, and you might have been, it might have just been me, so I had the microphone. But um, that's all I was trying to do was just to make sure that we didn't miss an opportunity to connect with the Lord because if we did, then you might as well. You wasted an hour of sleep and you got up. You know, there's, there's no reason for that. So that's, that's all that was about and that's kind of our focus every, not kind of, that's totally is our focus every Sunday is that if you want to meet Jesus, you can. If you don't, there's nothing we can do about that. But if you want to, we want this to be a place where you can. Because if you don't, I, you've missed something. All of the good things in the Bible that God says He wants to do in our life are done in relationship with Him. So we've, we've got to come to Him or we don't have anything. So anyway, that's that. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke 22. As Brandon said, there's three weeks leading up to Easter. And so we're going to look at some uh, the last week of Jesus' life over the next three weeks. Um, I've eaten with many of you and you've probably learned pretty quickly that I'm really selective when it comes to what food. I'm not picky, I'm selective when it comes to what I eat. Now, I can, if pressed, go into missionary mode, which means I'll eat anything. If you've ever been on a short-term mission trip, you know a, a part of the experience is eating what people give you. And you, just, you do that. And it doesn't, not liking the food is not a good enough reason not to eat it. You eat what, what the people serve you because they're, they're hosting you and they're being hospitable and... All of that stuff, you got to eat it. And if you think it's going to make you sick, unless you think it's going to make you sick while you're at the table, you've got to eat it. The only reason that you can't eat it is if you think it's going to make you sick right then because that's going to make your host feel bad. If it's going to make you sick once you get back to your room, tough luck. That's what you get for going on the mission trip. So I can do that if necessary. I can move into missionary mode and I'll eat anything. And I can smile and do all those things. But if I have my druthers... Um, I'm pretty selective when it comes to food, and it always gets down to taste, obviously, but I'm also a big texture person. For me, foods need to declare if they're solids or liquids. I can't eat anything that's pudding, creme brulee, pie filling, whipped cream, custard, that stuff that is not a solid or a liquid, I can't eat it at all, none of it. And that goes with condiments to me or the same way, ketchup mayonnaise, all of that, thick dressings, all of those things that aren't solid and aren't liquid. And you can tell, but try to suck it up through a straw and see if you still have to chew once it comes through the straw, then it's not, it hasn't declared. And that's kind of my rule. Casseroles, 
a lot of those things. Some of them I'll eat, but a lot of them are kind of fishy as well. So I'm, that's me when it comes to food, and that will... Did somebody make a comment? Weird. This is Luke 22. We'll come back to food in a minute. Luke 22. This is um, right after the Last Supper. This is some of Jesus' final interaction with the disciples. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you. That's actually plural. Satan has has asked to sift y'all as wheat. But I've prayed for you, that's singular. I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. But Simon replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times that you know me. Let's skip down to verse 54. Then seizing him, that's Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with him. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you're also one of them. Man, I'm not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was, was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And Peter went outside and wept bitterly. Kind of the main point for today is just like, in my opinion, all good food. We've got to, we've got to make a decision. We've got to declare where we stand when it comes to the Lord. This idea of sifting, um, Satan asking God to sift us, um, I think that applies to all of us who are going to go far in the Christian faith. At some point, we're going to be sifted. And if you haven't already decided beforehand where you stand, you're not going to make it. A lot of the times, maybe when you think of Satan, you think of him as a liar, and he is. The Bible says he's the father of lies. You might think of him as a destroyer, and he is. The Bible says that he's like a roaring lion prowling around looking for someone to devour. You might think of him as like the head of this demonic army, and he is. Um, Jesus calls him Beelzebub, which means prince of demons. But he's also um, the accuser of the brethren is kind of what it says in Revelation. Revelation 12.10 says, Satan stands before God day and night accusing the brothers. And that's us and sisters. That's us. If you're a Christian, then there's this picture of a courtroom with God the Father as a judge and we're on trial. Satan is like this prosecuting attorney and Jesus is our advocate and Satan is accusing us before the Lord of whatever it is that he's accusing us of and Revelation 12.10, this is going on all the time. And I think this sifting that we read about in Luke is, that's what that is. That's Satan as a prosecuting attorney. It says Satan's asked to sift you like wheat. It actually, um, the word is he demanded. Satan demanded to sift the disciples. And God said okay. We'll talk about that in a little bit, why God said okay. But there's this picture of, as Christians... We are constantly being accused by Satan before the Lord. You might remember Job. Job was a guy, he was in the Old Testament. Um, Job's one of the oldest books in the Bible. Uh, He was kind of fat and happy. According to Job 1, 2, and 3, he had seven sons, which was the ideal number, three daughters. I don't know what that says about daughters. That 
it's better to have twice as many sons than daughters. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, a large number of servants. Job 1.3 says Job was the greatest man among all the peoples of the east. So Job is a, a stud. And Satan, at some point, and this is weird, I don't pretend to know what's going on, but there's this picture of Satan in, in this court in heaven, and he and God are talking, and God's like, look at Job, he's a great guy. And Satan says, well, of course he's a great guy. Of course he's righteous and God-fearing. Look at all the stuff you've given. And this is Job 1.9. Satan says, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him in his household and everything he has? You bless the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. So there's a little bit that Satan as the accuser. What he's saying is God's saying, look at Job. He's a model Christian or whatever you want to say. And Satan says, well, of course he is. You look at all the stuff you've given him. You've blessed him tremendously. You're protecting all his stuff. Of course he's a good guy. If you take his stuff away, then we'll see. And then listen to Job's day. Um, one day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabians attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. So that's his oxen, his camels and his servants. While he was, or oxen, donkeys and servants. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I've come from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So there's this picture. Job, that's probably the worst day in the history of the world that Job experienced right then. Everything he had Still had a wife, still had his health, everything else gone in one day. That was Satan's accusation. You take his stuff away and he'll curse you. Job doesn't. So a few days later, a few months, we don't know how long, Satan comes back. Job And God says, he didn't. Job stood up. He was righteous. He didn't curse me. And Satan says this. He says, skin for skin, a man will give all he has for his own life. But stretch your hand and strike his flesh and bones and he will surely curse you to your face. So what Satan is saying is, well, you still hadn't touched him yet. A guy, he'll, he knows that you're keeping him safe and so that's why he's still righteous. It's because you haven't touched him. And this is what happens to Job. This is chapter 2, verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his, te- soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. That's how much, I guess, he was hurting that broken pottery somehow made him feel better. His wife said to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And all this, Job did not sin in what he said. So there's this picture 
of Satan. That's kind of the picture I want you to see of Satan as the accuser of you if you're a Christian. What he's doing is he's in heaven and he's hurling these accusations to the Lord about you. And he's saying the only reason that person is following you is because of all the good stuff you've given them. It's because they're healthy. It's because they're successful. It's because they have a nice family. It's because you're, you've guided them. He's, what he's saying is it's, it's not, there's no integrity to it. There's nothing there. The only reason these guys are following you is because it's good for them to follow you. If you take away the good stuff, they're out. They're gone. They're not going to stand up. That's Satan as the accuser of the brethren. And I think that's when this whole idea of sifting, when Jesus says to Peter and actually to all 11 disciples, Judas at this point has already fallen off the wagon, to the other 11, he says, Satan's asked to sift y'all as wheat. I think what's going on is Satan as this accuser, he's doing the same thing. I think what he's saying is he's up in heaven and he's saying the only reason those guys were loyal to Jesus is because he was working miracles. And the only reason they were loyal to Jesus was because they thought he was going to be a king and they thought they were going to get all, these, all this power and all this money and all this privilege and they were going to sit on these thrones and they were going to judge and he was going to overthrow Roman occupation and Israel was going to be free. That's the only reason they're following him. You show, show them that Jesus is going to die and they're gone. And I think he was cocky because he'd already turned Judas. And I think he's raging in heaven at the Father saying, let me at them. Their faith, it's not real. There's no roots there. Jesus, it's like Jenga. You pull Jesus, it's all gone. They're done. The only reason they're sticking is because they think he's going to be this warrior king Messiah who's going to ride in on a white horse and trample the Romans, and they're going to be his princes in this earthly government. Pull that out, and they're done. That's what Satan is lobbing at the Lord about us, or about the 11 disciples. And God says, go ahead and see. And I think there are times in our life where he does the same thing. And what God says is, go ahead and see. There are limits. God told Satan what he could do to Job. You can take his stuff, you can't touch his body. You can touch his body, you can't kill him. There are limits that God puts on what Satan can do. But if you're a Christian, at some point, you're going to be sifted. Satan is going to be hurling accusations about you to the Lord. The only reason they're in is because they were raised in church. The only reason they were in was because they think it'll be good for their career. The only reason they're in is because you've made their life a better roses. The only reason they're in is because... Whatever. And God's going to say, well, okay, go and see. And he's going to turn him loose to sift us. And then it's on us. What does that sifting process show? And you may say, well, that's just not right. That's not loving. That's not fair. That's not nice. Why would God let Satan sift us? That's just, what's that about? That doesn't seem, again, it just doesn't seem what's the benefit, what's the point of all that. This is Revelation 20, starting in verse 11. This is, at the, this is the end of all the stuff here. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. So you've got, you got two sets of books. You've got this, all these books that are opened, and then this book of life. 
that was open. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's, that's it. That's where everyone who's ever lived is headed, to this throne, and you, it's laid out there very plainly. There's a set of books. It's kind of like there's a book on me. It's not the Bible. There's another book on me, and it's everything I've done. It's my heart. It's, my, it's everything I've done. And I'm going to be judged based on what's written in that book. And there's a book on Bo, and there's a book on Jen, and there's a book on you. And it's got, it's your life, this is your life, open up, start reading. And God knows everything, so it's all in there. So you got that book, and then there's this book of life. And everyone whose name is not found written in the book of life goes to the lake of fire, which is not fun. These are the guys you'll be living with, Satan, the Antichrist, death hell. You don't want to do that for forever. Everyone whose name is not found written in the book of life winds up in this lake of fire based on what's written in their book. Because on page one or page two, or if you're really great, maybe it's page seven, you sinned. At some point, you fell short of God's glory and that's what happens. The wages of sin is death. So we've sinned and unless our name is written in the book of life, then all God's got is the book of David, and it's not that pretty. And I'm done if he's going to judge me based on that book. So we're saved by grace, your name being written in the book of life. That's choosing to follow Jesus. That's saying, help me, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me, I've screwed up. That's it. That's all God. That's You're saved by grace. It's nothing that you do other than say help. But there's also this other book, about your life, and the Bible's very clear, front to back, that we will be judged based on what we've done. Even if you're a Christian, you will be judged based on what you've done. You don't go to heaven based on what you've done, but there's this idea that in heaven there are rewards, and I don't know what those, some people talk about houses and crowns, and it's all metaphorical language in the Bible, but there's going to be stuff that you're going to get, depending on how you live. So even though I go to heaven because my name's written in the book of life, God's still going to look at the book of David to see if there's anything there. Is there anything there worth rewarding or not? 1 Corinthians 3 says this. Let me get there. This is starting in verse 11, I believe. No one can lay any foundation other than one already laid, which is Jesus. So that's the book of life thing. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw... His work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. Day is capitalized. That's judgment day. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he's built survived, he will receive his reward. If it's burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flame. So the picture there is of a Christian, someone whose name is written in the book of life, but then they hadn't done their, their kind of what's written in the book of David is not good stuff. There's nothing there that's of value. And so all of the stuff that I've done for however long, it's all burned up. I'm still going to heaven, but it's kind of like there's smoke at my heels as I go. So that's, that's where we're all headed. To this, and that's nothing to be afraid of. It's just it is what it is. There's a judgment at the end of time. And if your name's written in the book of life, you'll live forever. And if it's not, well, you won't. 
well, you will. You'll live forever in the, bank, in the lake of fire, which won't be fun. And all of us will be judged according to what's written in the book of David or Bo or Jason or whatever. And if you're a Christian, the Lord will reward you on the things that are written there. How does that apply to sifting? Just Sifting to me is a rough draft. If you've ever had, written a big paper and you're nervous about it, it's 50% of your grade or 75% of your grade. It's great if the teacher will let you turn in a rough draft so you can see where you stand. That's what sifting is. God's letting you turn in a rough draft so you can see what's in your heart because you still have time to change. Peter blew it huge. He couldn't have screwed up bigger than he screwed up. He had three chances over the course of about two hours to do the right. I don't know why he didn't just leave after the first one. For some reason, he stuck around. I don't get that. That's like the teacher tells you this is what's on the test, and he still misses every question. I don't, whatever. He blew it as big as you can blow it. But he, that's not the last chapter in his book. Two months later, he's standing up in the middle of Jerusalem talking about Jesus in the face of all kinds of negative consequences. He rewrote his book. He had a rough draft the night that Jesus died. He got to see what was in his heart, and it wasn't pretty. It was wood, hay, and straw. And he, he could have done a Judas and hung himself and said, I'm done, but he didn't. The Lord restored him. You can read the end of John. I think it's John 22. The Lord restores him. And eventually he becomes a leader in the church. This is not the last chapter for Peter. It's a rough draft is what it is. And I think that's the reason God allows us to be sifted. Because he, you're going to be judged. And that, the verdict of that judgment is eternal. So let's figure out what it is beforehand. It's a, it's a rough draft. It's a practice test. God lets you see what's in there. So if you don't like what's in there, you still got time to change it. It's his grace and it's his mercy that he is extending to us. I'm not a farmer, which comes as a shock to you. This idea of sifting, agricultural term, what happened? This is my understanding. Guys grew wheat and then they would harvest the wheat. And what you want from wheat is the kernel. And there's a bunch of stuff around it called chaff that you don't want. So... What they would do is they'd put their wheat in a pile and they'd get a big thing, it's like a pitchfork. In the Bible, it's called a winnowing fork. You might read that. It's, that word a lot of times is used in the context of judgment. And they would pick this wheat up and they'd throw it up into the air and apparently it's pretty windy in Palestine and the wind would blow and it would blow away the chaff and the wheat kernels were heavy enough that they fell back to the ground. So they'd just sit there and the men would do this and do this and over time, a lot of the chaff would blow away and they'd be left with almost pure wheat kernels. That was stage one. Stage two, they would take what was left and they put it in these big round sifters and they'd just start shaking. And they'd shake and they'd shake and they'd shake and eventually all of the chaff would be gone. Apparently there was some that's more stubborn than others and it clings to the wheat more tenaciously. And so you shake and you shake and you shake and eventually it falls off. And I don't think it's an accident that the word here is sift. The idea is being sifted is not about am I going to rob this bank or am I going to punch this person in the face when I get angry. Like this is, you're past that. This is the depth of your relationship with the Lord, the motives in your heart. All that other stuff has been blown away 
already. This is when you're in the sifter and you're being shaken and it's the stubborn chat. It's the stubborn things that tend to cling to your heart. And they're different for each of us. Satan with Job takes this, uh, this approach of the reason he's righteous is because he's got so much stuff. It's a different approach with Peter. It's the approach with Pe- Peter's already given up everything. He's walked away from his business. He's walked away from his family. Satan can't use that line with him. He's already given everything up. The approach he takes with him is it's because you haven't, he hadn't had to pay for anything yet. Jesus has been with him the whole time. There has been no cost involved to him personally. He hadn't had to make a stand where it could cost him personally. And so that's the approach he takes with Peter. And I don't know what it will be for you. I don't know what the stubborn things are that cling to your heart. And I honestly don't know what the stubborn things are that cling to my heart either. But I do know if you're going to do this for very long, at some point, Satan's up there, he's already accusing you. And at some point, God's going to say, okay, why don't you go see? Why don't you go see? And you're going to be shaken. And it could be a removal of blessings. Are you going to stay true to the Lord if you don't experience any of his favor in your life? If all the things that used to turn to gold aren't anymore? Will you stay true? Are you out? It might be like Peter where it's going to cost you something more than just stuff. It's your reputation, it's your life, it's your family. Are you willing in those moments, are you going to stay true or are you out? When it actually comes down to costing you personally. For some people, and I don't know, maybe this would be the good side of sifting. I think some people, they're sifted because I think they get stuff. And it's to test the purity of your heart as you are successful? Or are you going to drift away from the Lord and start thinking about how great you are and how much you've done? And it's success that actually winds up tripping you up. I don't know what those things look like, but I I do think it's pretty simple what we have to do. God's going to do a thousand things. He's going to love you. He's going to reveal himself to you. He's going to speak to you and forgive you and give you. He's going to do all kinds of things. We only have to do one thing. We just need to declare where we stand with Jesus. That's it. All you got to do is choose. He'll do, all, he'll do all the other stuff. All you have to do is choose. I was watching um, a rerun of The Office on Thursday night. Uh, the Office is it's a sitcom that comes on NBC. It's pretty funny. But there's a, the head of The Office is a guy named Michael, and he's kind of a dork. And he's in this, this huge financial strain. I mean, he's got debt massive debt, and he doesn't know what to do. He's working a second job. He gets fired from his second job. He doesn't know what to do. And he's in a conference room or in the break room with a guy named Creed who he works with, and Creed says, you need to declare for bankruptcy. That'll solve all your problems. Declare for bankruptcy, solve all your problems. Michael, in his head, thinks bankruptcy is like witness protection for some reason, so he starts going through all of these things that he's always wanted to do. He wants to be a, a lord of something and raise ponies and... So anyway, they show him in his office and he's thinking through the pros of bankruptcy. And the next scene, he walks out into the office and he stands up and he says, I declare bankruptcy. (laughs) And he turns around and walks back into his office. And the accountant walks in and says, Michael, you can't just say it. There's some stuff you've got to do. And when I'm saying we've got to declare where we stand with Jesus, it's not about saying, I stand for Jesus. Peter did that. Peter said, 
God, I'm, Jesus, I'm with you. If everybody else is out, I'm staying in. I'll die for you. He had the talking part down. That's not what this is about. It's about making a commitment. To me, there's about four basic postures you can have toward Jesus. The, what he says to all of us is, follow me. That's it. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to follow Jesus. That's two words. That's it. And you can, we're all born, if Jesus is over there, we're all born with our back to him. And, we're all, and we all walk away from him. That's what we do. That's one posture you can have with your back to Jesus and walking away from him. At some point, if you choose to follow him, you have to turn around. That's called repentance. You've heard that church word. I screwed up and we repent and I start walking towards him. This is what we want. I'm following him. He's walking and I'm looking at him and I'm walking with him. Some people do this. They, at some point they repent and they start following and then they stop. Jesus is still walking around and they're looking at him. They're just not walking anymore. I think that's what happened to Peter. He didn't throw away his faith. He wasn't suddenly saying Jesus is not who he said he was. He just quit walking. Jesus says, if you're going to come after me, you've got to deny yourself. And Peter denied Jesus instead of himself. Jesus said, if you're going to come after me, you've got to be willing to give up your life. And Peter didn't. He chose his life over Jesus's. He, had, he just quit walking. At some point, that's bad. I don't know when that is. But at some point, he's a long way away and you're still standing here and you can't see him anymore. I think there are other people who their backs to him, but they're actually following him around. They don't know it, but they are. You might know some people like that. They're not, they're not Christians, but they act like it or they live like it. They're following Jesus even though they're not looking at him. And at some point, I think they will turn around. So I think you've got one of those are your only options. You're either looking at him and following him, you're looking at him and you're not, or your back's to him. And you're following him and you're not, and you're looking at him or you're not. And I think the decision for all of us is are you going to look at him and follow him? That's it. Then you just decide that. I'm going to look at him and follow him. And then when you wake up tomorrow, you just decide again. I'm going to look at him and follow him. And then on Tuesday, I'm going to look at him and follow him. And then on Wednesday, I'm going to look at him and follow him. And at some point, you're going to be sifted. But if you've made this commitment, I'm going to look at him and follow him. You're opening yourself up to the Lord. And he's doing, you're doing one thing, he's doing a thousand things. And when you're sifted, you'll be like Job. You're going to come through. You're going to come through. I've wondered about this. Again, I was a good test taker in school. And so it's hard for me to get how Peter failed when Jesus told him the questions like six hours before they showed up. How do you not, like how does that not work? Jesus says, you're going to deny me at dinner. He says this. So it's like, let's say it's 6 o'clock. How do you forget that by midnight when the woman says, do you know him? Like, I don't get, I don't get how, it doesn't make sense to me. But it doesn't matter. Because sifting's about what's in your heart. It didn't matter. It didn't matter that Jesus told him what was coming. You can't fake the sifting. We've talked before, we live out of our hearts. What's in us comes out of us. And when you're sifted, what's in you comes out of you. Based on the right rewards and punishment, we can get anybody to do anything. You've all had those classes in college. Pavlov's dogs and all that stuff. Rewards and punishments, we can change any behavior. We can fake it. I'm not saying that we even do that on purpose in a negative way. We can fake it. Sifting, you can't fake it. Because it gets way down to what's in your heart. And it doesn't matter if you already know the questions. Because it's revealing what's in your heart. 
and you can't fake it. So it didn't matter that Peter knew what was coming. It didn't matter if Jesus told him ten minutes before. It didn't matter if he got a letter in the if he got a text in the middle of this conversation around the fire. Peter, you're denying Jesus. It didn't matter because it was revealing what's in his heart. It didn't matter that Job didn't know what was going on. It was revealing what was in his heart. And it wouldn't have made a difference if Job had. If Job could have seen a window into heaven and seen this whole thing that was going on, it didn't make a difference. Because it was showing what's in Job's heart. And knowing that wouldn't have changed what was in Job's heart. And the same thing is true of us. Knowing if you're being sifted doesn't matter. If you're going through a terrible time in your life and you wonder if you're being sifted, I don't know. And honestly, it doesn't matter. Because it won't change the outcome. It's going to show what's in your heart. And if you don't like what you see, that's great. It's a rough draft. There's plenty of time to fix it before the final. And if you do, be encouraged. There's still plenty of time to go before it's done. So I think for all of us, we've just got to make a choice. Are you going to look at him and follow him? It's a yes or no question. There's a, a reason that the Bible compares our relationship with the Lord to a marriage. We can list 50,000 parallels. One of them is you don't bail when things get bad. That's how it is with our relationship with the Lord. That's when the sifting comes. Are you going to bail when it gets bad? Yes or no? It's not a heavy thing. And you don't have to say, I don't know what I'm... Don't worry about it. It'll come and it'll show you what's in your heart. Two things and then we're going to close. God never abandons us during the sifting. Jesus says, Peter, I prayed for you. I prayed for you about this. He's not left there on his own. Hebrews 7.25 says, God, Jesus still prays for us. So even if you feel like God's a thousand miles away and he doesn't give a rip about what's going on in your life, or even if you feel like he's out to get you, he's not. He's pray- Jesus is praying for you. He's interceding for you. The Bible says Jesus is our advocate. That's 1 John 2. You've got somebody in the courtroom. You're not there all by yourself. You're never alone. Second thing is, Peter screwed up as bad as you can screw up. And he still made it right. I've wondered, what, Jesus, what was the expression on Jesus' face when he looked at Peter? You know, we read that verse, he denied him, and then it says Jesus looked at Peter. I wonder what he looked like. And I think my picture of that says a lot about what I think of Jesus. And so does yours. He wasn't surprised. He told him he was going to do it. I don't even think he was disappointed. I think he looked at him with hope that said, it's, it's not done, Peter. Don't give up. I'm coming back and we'll fix it. That's how I think he looked at him. And it's the same way he looks at every one of us. If you feel like you've been sifted and maybe you didn't like what came out, It's not the end of the story. He looks at you the same way. There's hope. All you have to do is turn around and start walking in the other direction. Let's pray.